As you and I look at the book of Nehemiah this evening, I want to begin uh, by giving a little bit of background information as to where we are as we open up into the eighth chapter, specifically during our time this evening. By the time you and I get to Nehemiah chapter 8, we understand that the temple uh, has already been rebuilt. You go all the way back to chapter 2 near the beginning of the book, you and I read about Nehemiah going to King Artaxerxes and the king there giving Nehemiah permission and the opportunity to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls, to rebuild the temple. And so the walls have been repaired, the gate has been repaired. It looks like a completely different place from when you and I first opened up the book of Nehemiah to the point to where we are here now in chapter 8. In fact, many of the Jews, many of Israel has been able to come back home from captivity, so it's a completely different looking scene. And when you get into Nehemiah chapter 8, we're reading about really a grand and momentous moment for the people of Israel. We're reading about a time of great joy, a time of great happiness for them because they have just come out of captivity. They've just been able to come home. Their city looks back to what it used to be. There's so much rejoicing for the people here at this particular time. And because of all of those things that have just taken place, because everything is back to where it was, because the people are in a great place, it's time for them to recognize God. It's time for them to honor God and to worship God. And that's what we open up to here as we get into Nehemiah chapter 8. It's interesting when you look at Nehemiah chapter 8 that the main focus of this particular study and the character that we're really going to look at here just briefly as we begin, just by way of introduction this morning, is actually, or rather this evening, is actually not by the name of Nehemiah. Even though Nehemiah's name is written on this book, we're actually going to be discussing just for a moment a person, an individual by the name of Ezra. You and I remember Ezra to be someone who was a priest and also a scribe. In other words, Ezra's Ezra's job uh, was to copy down the law, to know the law, to know how to teach the law. Ezra understood the importance of the law. He studied it, he knew it, and he lived it. And thus, because of all of those things, because Ezra spent so much time within the law, within the book that God wanted the people to know, he prepared himself. In fact, you and I know the very famous verse out of the book of Ezra, Ezra chapter 7 and verse 10, the Bible tells us that Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord. Ezra, what are you doing? What does it mean that you're seeking the, the law of the Lord, that you're preparing your heart? Ezra, in other words, is saying, look, I'm prepping myself. I'm making necessary preparations to make sure that I know exactly what it is that I need to be doing in order to be in a good standing and in order to have a good relationship with God, in order to do what God would have me to do. He was seeking after the law because, again, remember, his job was to study. His job was to copy it. He knew about all of the great treasures, the jewels that were within God's commands to him, and thus he understands the importance of it. But not only does Ezra prepare his heart, if you continue there in Ezra chapter 7 and verse 10, the Bible tells us not only did he seek the law, but he rather he did it, and then he taught statutes and ordinances in Israel. That is exactly what is taking place here in Nehemiah chapter 8. That's why I wanted to read that verse, because of everything that's about to take place as we open up here in Nehemiah chapter 8. As we talk this evening about this idea of opening the book, what is the book? What is this particular book that is about to be opened, that is about to be read in front of this entire audience of people? You and I understand that we're talking about the law of God. We understand that we're talking about God's commands that he has handed down to his people so that they might follow it and so that they might have a good relationship with him. That's not some fiction book filled with stories and mere tales that never really happened in life, but rather it showed them how they ought to live their lives on a daily basis 
just like the good book tells you and I to do today. The purpose of our study this evening is to show each of us how we should react whenever we get a chance to open up the book. Whenever you and I have an opportunity to open up the book, to open up the Word of God, whether it be on our own study on a daily basis or whether it be here in a worship setting or in a class setting, you and I should have a very specific and certain attitude. Our heart should feel, should feel a very specific way as it comes to our attitude towards the Word of Almighty God. Five things I want to bring to our attention as we go through Nehemiah chapter 8 uh, this evening. Here's number one. When we think about our approach to the Word of God, I want you to think about the word desire. I want you to think about the word desire as it comes to us and the way that we look at whenever we get to open up the book. Notice with me here, beginning of verse 1. Now all the people gathered together was one man in this open square that was in front of the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded Israel. I want you to imagine as we begin this evening, the greatest crowd you've ever seen. The largest crowd that you have perhaps ever been a part of. Maybe it was at some concert or maybe at some sporting event. Whatever it might be, think thousands and thousands of people. That's the scene that you're seeing right here. Some 50,000 people, give or take a few, are gathered together ready to sit at the feet of Ezra as he is getting ready to open up this book and to teach it, to read it to all of these people in a unified effort to hear the law. Ezra is standing before them to read out of the book that was the most important thing to them, not only just to hear, but to digest it and to see how applicable it was to them in their lives. You see, when it comes to the people of Israel and it comes to them being able to sit right here at the foot of Ezra, what are they able to think about? Their understanding of where they have just been. Keep in mind, where has Israel just come out of? They've just come out of captivity. They have just come out of very difficult, very hard, very harsh times. And so that's what's on their mind is they're getting ready uh, to, to listen to the law. Surely they hadn't forgot about those things. They know that in their minds they want to be pleasing to God. They want to listen and to obey all the things that God has commanded them to do. That was their desire. And because of that, they're seeking this opportunity to grow. Here's the underlying fact, and this is applicable to every single one of us today. You and I will never, ever learn if we don't have the desire to learn. We'll never learn, we'll never grow if we don't ever want to grow in the first place. Cletus, you, you wouldn't have the desire to go out in your shop and turn pins, would you? If you didn't want to learn how to do that in the first place, you wouldn't be out there on a daily basis. I wouldn't be out on the golf course trying to make my golf game better, which, which is still terrible, by the way. I, but I wouldn't be out there trying to get it to grow and to improve if I didn't have the desire to do that in the first place. The same thing is with us spiritually. You and I will never ever learn. We will never ever see growth in our lives or improvement in our lives if we don't have the desire to be better today than we were yesterday and to be better tomorrow than we were today. It's a crying shame, brothers and sisters, that you and I are able to look out into our world, that we're able to look into our society, we're able to look into our culture, and we are able to see a blatant lack of interest and a blatant lack of respect for the Word of Almighty God, a lack of desire for the scriptures, for the book that God has inspired and preserved and has left for us to study and to read. Not just a lack of desire, but accompanied with that is this attitude of contempt. 
of, of people seeing the Bible as something that is worthless, as seeing it as something that is of no value, as something that is completely beneath us. But when we think about it, when it comes to the world and we look at the world around us and we think about the way that they view the Scriptures, that's not really that big of a surprise, is it? It's not that big of a shock to you and I as we look out and we see those in the world with whom we come in contact having a lack of respect for the Word of Almighty God. We look at that and we expect them to have a flippant and a superficial view of the Scriptures. But you want to know what's even more of a crying shame is when there is a lack of interest in the Word of God among God's own children among those who are a part of the church, those who are a part of the family of God, Christians who lack a desire to come together and to worship and to study and to grow, Christians who lack the desire to open up the book in their own homes and to grow their own wealth of knowledge, Christians who lack the zeal and the fire to go out and to teach their brothers, rather their neighbors, the people with whom they come in contact. You and I cannot but applaud the Jews, at least in this very moment, for having a desire to come together and to hear the word of God. It was past time for them to consider carefully what it was that God had been commanding them. After all, if we think about it, what was it that led them to Assyrian captivity? What was it that led Judah to Babylonian captivity? It was their lack of desire for the word of Almighty God. A price was paid for their lack of desire. When it came to the word of Almighty God, they paid that price and they remembered it. Thus, at this moment, they have a great desire. Why should you and I have this desire? As it comes to us as 21st century Christians, we look at Nehemiah chapter 8, we understand their desire for the Word of God, but how does that apply to us? We don't live in that time. That doesn't make any sense to us, everything they had to go through. But have you thought about this? Why should we have this desire? Why have a desire to come together with brothers and sisters and worship? Why have a desire every single day to open up the book and to study and to see what God would have us to do? Why have a desire at all? Brothers and sisters, you and I must have a desire because when we look at this sin-sick world and we see the terrible and destructive path on which our world is headed, we have to remember that before you and I ever came into contact with the soul-saving blood of Jesus Christ through baptism, we too were on that exact same path. You and I must have a desire to open up this book because it tells me that every single person has transgressed the law of God. Romans chapter 3 and verse 23. It tells me that with those transgressions, you and I are deserving of death. Romans chapter 6 and verse 23. And because it tells me that while we are in that state of being separated from God because of our sins, Isaiah 59 and verse 2, God sent His only Son because of His love for us. John chapter 3 verse 16. Romans chapter 5 and verse 8. Jesus Christ came to this earth to be that propitiation for our sins. We talked about that briefly this morning in Bible class. I look at this book and I study it. I have a desire for it. Yes, because it's commanded of us as Christians to do it. 2 Timothy 2 and verse 15. But I also do it because I want the world around me to come into contact with the antidote for the greatest disease that our world ever faces. Romans chapter 1 and verse 16, Paul tells me I'm not ashamed. Paul tells me that he was not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Paul, why? Paul, you've been through so many things, it doesn't make sense. Paul, if anyone had the opportunity and supposedly the right to throw in the towel to wave the white flag because of everything you've endured, Paul, it could be you, but Paul, why are you not ashamed? Because it's the gospel of Christ that is the power of God and through salvation. This book is the only thing 
that has the power to save mankind. Thus, I have a desire for it. Here's number two. Notice with me, continuing on. Look at verse two. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men and women and all who could hear with understanding on the first day of the seventh month. Verse 3. Then he read from it in the open square that was in front of the water gate from morning until midday before the men and women and those who could understand in the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. There's a couple of things I want to point out as we look at these couple of verses. Number one, I want you to think about this. Ezra read from morning until midday. That's a decent amount of time, isn't it? From morning all the way until midday, he is sitting down. These people are sitting around him, and they are listening. They are taking in all of the things that Ezra uh, is telling. That's at least a few hours. Boy, that's hard to imagine in our, t- in our day and age, isn't it? Yeah, that's hard to imagine having to sit with your brothers and sisters for more than 30 minutes and to hear the word of God preached to you. Man, that, that, that's difficult. I don't know how they did that. I hope you can hear the sarcasm. I know that we get busy. I understand that. I understand we have so many things going on in our lives. I understand we fill them with things like work and school and sports and band and friends and everything else that this world offers us. But when you think about everything that you do in this life, compare that to the amount of time that you put aside to spend in study of the word of Almighty God. What does that look like? When you compare it to everything else that you do, How much time do you get to spend? Do you allow yourself to spend inside of God's word? Outside of Bible class and worship, do you open up your Bible? Honestly, outside of any time that we get to gather together on the first day of the week or on a midweek study, do we ever get to open up our Bibles? Or are we the type of individuals who have to dust off our Bibles on the first day of the week because we haven't touched them since the last time we got together? The time that we get, keep in mind, not have to, but the time that we get to spend in worship, the time that we get to spend in study throughout the week, you and I ought to view it as something that is a privilege, as something that is an honor, as something that is an opportunity of which you and I cannot ever get enough. If we are of the mindset to where we view it as a chore or as a drudgery to have to open up the book and to study it throughout the week or to come together with brothers and sisters and to worship for three hours on Sunday and one hour on Wednesday night to have no desire and to have no attentiveness then perhaps it's time for you and I, brothers and sisters, to check ourselves at the door, to do an examination of our hearts and our attitudes, and to really think about why we are even here in the first place. Are you and I here just to simply check off a box, or are we here because we love Almighty God, because we have a desire for His Word and to grow, and while we're doing it, we have an ability to be attentive to all of those things, to see if our priorities are in the right place. It won't be something that's very difficult. Think about what Paul said in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. I've been crucified with Christ, Paul says. It's no longer I who am living, but Christ who is living in me. Joey talked about Colossians 3 this morning. Again, thinking in, in mind of verse 3 and verse, th- verse 4. For you died, your life is hidden with Christ, verse 4. But when Christ, who is our life? Christ who is our life. When my life revolves around Jesus Christ, I have no trouble with my desire for him and for his commands or with my attentive nature as it concerns his word. Notice also this, number two, who heard? Who heard the reading of the law? Notice men, women, but also children. It wasn't just the men, was it? It wasn't just the women. It wasn't just the adults who were there, but even the children who could understand were gathered there. They were there together and they were able to understand. Anyone who could understand the law, they were there 
They were ready to listen and they were ready to grow. They gave their attentiveness to the reading. But then notice number three again, just to reiterate, they gave their attention. They gave their complete focus because they wanted to hear it. They had an interest in understanding what God wanted them to do in the way that he wanted them to live their lives. I think about Psalm chapter 1, beginning of verse 2, the psalmist says, But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates how long? Day and night. First Timothy chapter 4 and verse 13, Till I come, give attention to reading, to exhortation, and to doctrine. Brothers and sisters, our Creator took the time to ensure that His Word was preserved through thousands of years for so you and I can have a copy of it within our hands so that we can study it and so that we can read it. Thus, should we not make it a point in our lives that if God saw fit to, that it was that important to preserve it up until this point in now, in this in our history now, that certainly we should give our attention to it. Here's number three. I want you to think about the word respect. Notice with me here in verse five. Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people. For he was standing above all the people, and when he opened it, all the people stood up. Verse 6, And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. Then all the people answered, Amen, Amen. While lifting up their hands, they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Notice how they respond. How do they view the law? How do they view the law? What's their understanding of it as it is being opened and as it is being read to all the people? Notice that they have desire. They have attention, but then also notice this. All the people stood up. They bowed their heads and their faces to the ground. What is it signifying? What does it mean as the, as the book is being opened, as they, as they stand up when it's being opened, and then as it's being read, they're falling onto the ground. They're falling prostrate. They're kneeling on the ground. What are they doing? Well, much like in the movies you and I watch today, whenever a king is approached by some of his people, oftentimes what do they do? They bow down to the ground. They fall to the ground. They are showing respect. They're showing reverence, a recognition of who the king was, of his power, his rule, and his authority over them. Brothers and sisters, that's exactly what is happening right here. They understood the words and the, and the rule and the authority of their king and of their ruler, and thus we should imitate them when it comes to our approach to the word of Almighty God. I'm not saying that when the scriptures are opened, you and I have to stand up or that we have to bow down to the ground. I'm not saying that. However, I am saying this. Our attitude and approach to it must stay the exact same that you and I are of the understanding of the importance and the reverence that the Word of God deserves. You and I must never allow the world's mistreatment of the Bible to cross its way over into the way that we handled it. When the world throws the Bible down and tramples all over it, you and I must hold it up in reverence and respect. But how do I do that? How do I respect the Word of God? Think about a couple of verses, and I'll give these to you quickly, and I'll read over them. You can study them more for yourself. Notice Job chapter 28 and verse 28. And to man he said, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to depart from evil is understanding. Notice Psalm 31 verse 19. Oh, how great is your goodness, which you have laid up for those who fear you, which you have prepared for those who trust in you in the presence of the sons of men. Psalm 85 and verse 9, Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. Psalm 112 and verse 1, Praise the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who delights greatly in his commandments. Proverbs chapter 1 and verse 7, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. How do I respect the word of Almighty God? How do I show the word of God that I am understanding of what it says, but not only that, but I revere it enough to where I'm going to put it into my life? How do I do that? By respecting the author of it. 
being God himself. By making my life run parallel with the commands he has for me, by glorifying and by praising his holy name, by lifting it up with reverence and respect. That's how I respect the word of Almighty God. Notice what they say as they are, as it is being read. What are they saying? Amen and amen. As if to further showcase their respect and their reverence for God and his word. After Ezra has, has blessed and praised God for who he is, what do they say? They say, amen, amen. Let it be true. Let this happen. We are in agreement with everything that has been said. These people have heard the law. They have taken it in and it has resonated within them. And thus they are showing their submission to God through their reaction. Notice number four with me as we continue through this passage. Notice with the beginning of verse 7, as we think about the word understand. Uh, you know, it's, it's funny. I was reading this verse earlier today. There's a lot of names in here I have no idea how to pronounce. But one of the things our instructors always told us was that when you come across a passage of Scripture like this, if you just read it confidently, nobody will second guess you. So I'm going to read this as confidently as I can, and you're just going to take my word for it that I'm pronouncing these correctly. Notice with me here in verse 7. Also, Jeshua, Benai, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabbatai, Hodijah, Messiah, Kalita, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, Peliah, and the Levites helped the people to understand the law, and the people stood in their place. Notice verse 8. So they read distinctly from the book in the law of God, and they gave the sense and helped them to understand the reading. Understanding what they were reading was so vital, and they understood that. Think about it. If they couldn't understand, what would be the point? If they couldn't grasp what was being read to them, what was the point of Ezra even reading to them in the first place? Think about Acts chapter 8. The Ethiopian eunuch on his way down the road, and he doesn't understand what he's reading. And so the Spirit catches Philip, sends it to him, and he asks him, he says, can you understand? He said, how can I unless someone teach me? And so Philip has the opportunity to teach the eunuch about Jesus Christ. I want you to think about this quote I came across as I was studying for this. Bob Winton said this. He said, the purpose of preaching is to impart God's word to the minds of the audience so that they may know and understand their obligations and their blessings. Brothers and sisters, when it comes to the teaching of the word of God, it is so important that we do so in a way that our audience can understand. It does someone, you, me, whoever it might be, it does us no good to hear it and to not be able to understand it. The people who are listening to Ezra, they get it. They understand it and they take it to heart. I want you to go to Psalm chapter 119 with me for just a moment. Psalm 119, there's a couple of verses I want us to think about. As it comes to us being able to know what the Word of God is teaching us, notice with me a couple of verses. Psalm 119 Notice with me here in verse 8. The psalmist says, Open my eyes that I may see wondrous things from your law. Notice verse 27. Make me understand the way of your precepts, so shall I meditate on your wonderful works. Verse 34. Give me understanding, and I shall keep your law. Indeed, I shall observe it with my whole heart. Verse 73. Your hands have made me and fashioned me. Notice here again. Give me understanding that I may learn your commandments. Jump to verse 125. I am your servant, the psalmist says. Give me understanding again that I may know your testimonies. Verse 169, nearing the end of the chapter. Let my cry come before you, O Lord. Give me understanding according to your word. Over and over and over again, you and I see this idea portrayed 
of someone wanting, of someone desiring to be able to understand the precepts, the law, the commands, the word of Almighty God. Here's what it boils down to. Understanding ultimately must lead us to obedience. If you truly understand what it is that God would have you to do, then you know that you must live it out. You and I must make application in order to be pleasing to God. I think about this from this perspective. As you and I walk through this life, sometimes we are the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8. In other words, sometimes you and I need help understanding the scriptures, don't we? Sometimes we need a Philip to come to us and to help us and to be able to show us exactly what the scriptures are saying. But then sometimes that coin can flip, can't it? And sometimes we can be the Philip and we can look out and see an Ethiopian eunuch in that they don't understand what it is they are reading. Here's my plea for us today. I hope that you and I are not too prideful or arrogant to be in either one of these positions. That you and I are not too arrogant or prideful to look out and to look at those Phillips and to ask for help, but that you and I are also not ever too prideful or arrogant that if someone comes to us asking us for help, that we would always be willing to be like Philip and to go to them and to say, here, let me help you. Let me teach you. Let me help you understand what it is that the word of God is trying to teach us. Here's the last thing I want, I want to look at this evening. Notice with me that about the word react in verse 9. <clears throat> and Nehemiah, who was the governor, Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn nor weep, for all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat, drink the sweet, and send portions to those for whom nothing is prepared, for this day is holy to our Lord. Do not sorrow for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Notice how the people respond to the reading. This reading is read. There's thousands of people here. Keep in mind where they have just been. They've just been in captivity. They've just been in that place because of their disobedience, because of their lack of desire for God's commands. And so what happens? They hear the law and they weep. Why? Surely it was because of their past. Surely it was because they knew of some of the things that they had done, their guilt, their, their, their ashamedness because of all the things they've, they've just had to endure. They saw the value of the word of God. It convicted them and they remembered what they had done and how it landed them to where they were just some short while ago. But then what are they told? They're told not to weep. Ezra says, don't weep. Why? Specifically because it was a holy day, a day to recognize God and his perfect nature, but also could it simply been because their past was just that? That their past was in the past. It's almost as if Ezra is saying, look, here's a clean slate. Everything that you've done in the past, it's over. It's gone. It's done. You've come back to God. Here's your opportunity to live right. Here's your opportunity to hear the book as it's being opened, to remember all of the laws and the commands that you've been taught. Here's your opportunity to live your life the right way. Think about the book of Isaiah as we close uh, this evening. Isaiah chapter one, if you would go with me for just a moment this evening. Isaiah chapter one, as we think about so many times, the way that we view everything that we've done in our past, we all have things in our past that we have done that we're not proud of. We all have things in our past that we've done that we wish we never would have done. And I think so many times as it comes to the way that we view God and the way that he views our sins, even the things that he's forgiven, I think so many times we think that God still hangs on to them 
and thus so many times we do as well. I want to point out three passages very quickly uh, this evening as we look at this. Isaiah chapter 1, beginning verse 18. Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Isaiah says, look, the blood of Jesus Christ is going to cleanse you. It's going to make you completely whole. It's going to make you completely clean. And it's going to be completely gone. But I think so many times we forget about that. So many times we forget that in our past, all of those things that we done, that we have done that separated us once from God, we no longer have to worry about those things as New Testament Christians. Here's another one. Notice Isaiah chapter 38, beginning in verse 17. Indeed, it was for my own peace that I had great bitterness, but you have lovingly delivered my soul from the pit of corruption. Notice the last phrase of this, for you have cast all my sins behind your back. God says, here's the sins. I've forgiven them. Now what am I going to do? I'm throwing them behind me. I'm casting them behind me so that I can't see them anymore. Notice chapter 44, beginning in verse 11. I have the wrong reference up here, but essentially, I'll find this other reference and get it to you. I don't remember exactly what this one is, but essentially what he's saying, he talks about a great fog here in this passage of Scripture. He says there's a great fog there, and he says, I can't, basically he's saying he can't see through the fog to see everything that we've done in our past that he has once forgiven us, put them all behind us, and he says, I can't see them anymore. Far too often, we are like the children of Israel. And that sometimes when we look at the scriptures, it convicts us to the point to where we think everything that I've done in my past, it still clings on to me. It still holds on to me. The guilt is still there. Brothers and sisters, you and I understand about the grace and the mercy and the love of Almighty God, how all of those things in our past we've done, Jesus, because of his blood on the cross, has allowed us to be able to take all of those things and cast them away. God has forgiven us. God sees them no more. Brothers and sisters, that's exactly how you and I should be able to view our sins as it comes to the way that we open up the book. I hope this study of Nehemiah chapter 8 has been something that's beneficial for you. I think too many times we forget the kind of reverence and respect that we should have for the authority of the Scriptures, for the authority of everything that God has told us, understanding what God has done for us, and that without God, without His scheme of redemption, without God's plan of salvation that He has put into play for us, as we read about in the New Testament, you and I would be living as individuals with no hope. You and I would be living as individuals who have no hope for anything greater or better than what this world has to offer us. And brothers and sisters, that's a life that's certainly too dark, that I, one that I don't want to live. But you and I understand that because of Jesus Christ and because of what he's done, he has allowed us the opportunity to have that hope. He's allowed us the opportunity to have a hope of spending our eternity with him in heaven one day. And perhaps it's the case for you this, this evening that you're here and you're not yet a Christian. You're someone who has not given your life. You haven't submitted your life to Jesus Christ through the act of baptism. But you know we, that we can do that this evening. We can help you. We'll do all that we can to encourage you. We can take your confession. You can repent of those things. And you can be baptized in the water, that water representing Jesus' blood. And just like the Ethiopian eunuch that we referenced a moment ago in Acts chapter 8, you can go down to the water, you can come back up, rising as a new person, and you can go on your way rejoicing just as he did because you know that you're on your way to heaven. Or maybe you're here this, this evening and you are a Christian, but perhaps you understand that there is something in your life that's not right. Maybe there's sin, there's uh, something in your life that is pushing you away from God, but you want to get rid of that, you want to repent of those things and come home to him. Know that we'll do all that we can to help you. We'll do all that we can to encourage you. If you would, come as together we stand and as we sing.
What's up, guys? It's Caleb and Michael over here from the Scattered Abroad Network, and we just wanted to say thanks so much for listening to this episode. Yeah, we're so thankful to the East Hill Church of Christ for overseeing this network, and we're grateful to God for this opportunity. And don't forget, you can check out our show notes below for all of our social media links, email address, website, and we have a monthly newsletter, so don't forget to sign up for that. Please remember to leave us a rating or a review on whatever platform it is that you use, and please continue to keep our network in your prayers. As always, thank you again so much for listening. Be ready tomorrow. We have brand new content coming out here on the SAN. Thanks so much, and God bless.